Hello and welcome to this not quite all new episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter Munley, and for today's episode we are returning to a conversation that Connor and I had about the poem Say Grace by Emily Jungmin Yoon. The poem explores faith and identity and much, much more. Now, this is I will reveal one of my favorite poems, and we wanted to reshare it again today, partially because we are coming to the end of May, which is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. The last year has been marked by rising violence against AAPI people, so it felt like highlighting AAPI voices and work was more important than ever. Now, there are many past episodes of Close Talking that feature work by AAPI authors, Most recently, we talked about Marilyn Chin's poem, Blues on Yellow, Uh, and I encourage you to go back in the Close Talking archives and check out those episodes. Now, Close Talking is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, and so I also want to put in a plug for some past issues of the Cardboard Box Productions Inc. newsletter, Unboxed, Volume 11, Stop Asian Hate is a collection of recommendations for reading, watching, and listening, as well as a mini compendium of different community resources. Volume 14 features writing from Close Talking Social Media Manager Corey China, reflecting on the complexity and importance of AAPI Heritage Month. Links to both those newsletters are in the show notes, and you can subscribe to Unboxed at CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. On with the show. Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am co-host Connor McNamara-Stratton. And today we have a poem called Say Grace by Emily Jungmin Yoon, who was born in Busan, South Korea. She has a book out in 2017 called Ordinary Misfortune, and she'll have a book coming out this year called A Cruelty Special to Our Species, She's had poems in, I believe, The New Yorker, in Poetry Magazine, quite a few different high-profile places, and perhaps most notably, she is the Ruth, Lily, and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship Award recipient from the Poetry Foundation in 2017. So she is a young poet on the rise. He's killing it. And um, Ordinary Misfortunes is a chapbook. And cruelty special to our species is is uh, will be her first like full length collection. I don't know that this poem needs any special introduction. Um, so yeah, let's let's dive right into it. So this is "Say Grace" by Emily Jungmin Yoon. In my country, our shamans were women, and our gods multiple until white people brought an ecstasy of rosaries, and our cities today glow with crosses like graveyards. As a child in Sunday school, I was told I'd go to hell if I didn't believe in God. Our teacher was a woman whose daughters wanted to be nuns. And I asked, what about babies? And what about Buddha? And she said, they're in hell too. And so I memorized prayers and recited them in front of women I did not believe in. Deliver us from evil, O sweet Virgin Mary, amen. O sweet, O sweet, in this country which calls itself Christian, what is sweeter than hearing have mercy on us from those who serve different gods? 
O clement, O loving, O God, O God, amidst ruins, amidst waters, fleeing, fleeing, deliver us from evil, O sweet, O sweet, in this country. Point at the moon, at the stars. Point at the way the lake lies with a handful of feathers, and they will look at the feathers and kill you for it. If a word for religion they don't believe in is magic, so be it. Let us have magic. Let us have our own mothers and scarves, our spirits, our shamans, and our sacred books. Let us keep our stars to ourselves, and we shall pray to no one. Let us eat what makes us holy. Such a good one. Yeah, when I came across this poem, I was instantly engrossed, just because it has such a dense thicket of, to me, it seemed primarily gender and religion conversations sort of rubbing up against each other and going all sorts of interesting places. Um, that, that was what first just really stuck out to me. What's your, uh, what's your initial reaction? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I love this when I read it too. Yeah. And definitely religion and gender are seem very central. And also there's, um, you know, this kind of, which is wrapped up, but the kind of idea of cultural ethnic or like national identity Mm. Um, and there seems to be this, the, the poem seems to be trying to answer this question of like how um, to sort of honor or reclaim or live out or be true to one's cultural or national or ethnic identity, particularly with respect to um, religion and gender. And particularly, you know, she's writing the speaker is in America, presumably. And so there's a kind of, I think it's like how to live in that way when you've been sort of doubly displaced, where in the beginning, there's the first displacement of, in my country, our shamans were women and our gods multiple until white people brought an ecstasy of rosaries. So there, there seems to be a reference to, and, and this comes up when she, the speaker asks about Buddha, but South Korea... Um, I think still is, has a large Buddhist population. And so obviously the Christianity was like an import. I think sort of directly it was an import from uh, China or somewhat related to their occupation under Japan. But Christianity that came from them originally came from Europe. Um, and then there's that first displacement and then there's, well, now we're in America that calls itself Christian and don't recognize, you know, what we're pointing at. And so how do we sort of live also within that context? That's kind of like my, my broad strokes reading of the poem. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And I think the poem moves in, a, in an interesting way because it does start off talking about uh, in my country, which I think we can take to mean South Korea, um, and also talks about childhood experiences. So there's a little bit of, uh, when I first read it, it struck me that there's sort of three parts to the poem, which is that first part, which is like the childhood experience. Uh, well, really two experiences. First, what is going on in South Korea, then shifting into this very restrictive vision of Christianity. Then there's this middle section, which is 
a sort of a prayer within the poem. There's parts of the poem that are italicized indicating speech as opposed to parts that are not italicized. But this whole middle part sort of from the beginning of where she says, I prayed to women I did not believe in. Right after that, it goes into a literal prayer, but then continues in what seems to be a prayer up to in this country, point at the moon, at the stars, point at the way the lake lies. So I sort of saw that beginning section, then this prayer section, and then the last third of the poem is almost an adult perspective, naming more directly what the problem is. So you can point to all of this wonder in the world, but if you do it with feathers in your hand, if you have the wrong like base religion underpinning it, which is one that maybe the the country does not recognize or agree with, or really isn't Christian sort of in the world of the poem, then what's going to be pointed out is your otherness rather than the truth or the beauty that you may be describing. And then that transitions into her call for what kind of religion or spiritual orientation towards the world she would like to see. So there's like this childhood and young person section, there's this prayer section, and then there's a more adult perspective section in the poem. That would be my sort of quick gloss first reading. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's really right. Um, and there, alongside that movement is also this movement from kind of like a very narrative and also like personal sounding first person singular I to by the end, um, this kind of like plural we and a more sort of lyrical incantation almost and you know where we have like in the beginning you know as a child in Sunday school I was told this and our teacher was a woman and I asked what about babies and she said so there's kind of like we're like in scene for a moment but then by the end we get this like sort of marvelous like if a word for religion they don't believe in is magic so be it let us have magic let us have our own mothers let us keep our stars to ourselves. Let us eat what makes us holy. And things get, you know, very, uh, I think you're absolutely right, like adult, but, and also gets like sort of capacious in like a sort of a plural bringing everyone in or like not everyone, but everyone who shares this speaker's experience, basically. Definitely. And in each one of those parts of the poem, and even if you don't think of the poem in those parts running through the poem, um, however you have your reading of it. Um, there are women specifically referenced at each juncture. So at first there's this teacher who is a woman whose daughters wanted to be nuns. And then there's the Virgin Mary within the prayer. And then at the end, there is uh, our own mothers and scarves. And I think the scarves is meant to call to head coverings in, uh, in Islam. That was my initial connection for that uh whether or not that's the direct reference the poem wants to make uh that's what i was thinking of just in terms of stigmatized female religious presentation in western societies i mean this is probably a good good place to just call out again the connor and i are both cis white dudes you know so we enter all of these conversations with an awareness of and our own limitations as a result but uh what i was certainly struck by how that theme showed up in this poem and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on it. I think that's a really good observation. Yeah, and certainly our access to the poem is like necessarily sort of an encounter with 
an experience or an expression of an experience that we sort of don't experience and a kind of suffering and marginalization that we we don't have to undergo in a kind of way. And yeah, and also the shamans in the beginning are women too. Um, yes. So there, yeah, there's, it's, it's very specific and, and I think explicit too. It's, it's striking, especially that moment the, where the, the teacher whose daughters wanted to be nuns, that the speaker says our teacher was a woman whose daughter wanted to be nuns. And that woman is the last thing in the line because it's not immediately apparent in sort of like what the conversation is about that the, the gender is like sort of important in insofar as my skim like stupid surface reading is that it's an authority figure who's imposing a religious preference on someone who doesn't want that basically so it seems like notable um as you pointed out that the the poem is kind of like our teacher was a woman who has daughters and the daughters want to be nuns and that she's memorizing the prayers and then later reciting them in front of women I did not believe in. And it's interesting. Yeah, I think I, I agree with how you are thinking about it. And I am still trying to work through sort of a way to conceptualize it. I mean, in some ways, it, it does seem like, I don't know, the only way that I have a thought about it is that on the one hand, the, already this poem is like only women. In a, and in patriarchal societies, men are obviously exerting dominance and oppression. And it's it's also interesting that the speaker is is not just locating women as the shamans or as, you know, the sort of holy figures, but also as the sort of the teacher, the oppressive teacher, the, the women that she doesn't believe in. And that seems to be kind of like the dual tension, I guess, is that on the one hand, it, there's a deliberate creation of this this world that is deliberately crafted to exclude men, but then on the other hand is also deliberately naming women as part of the sort of institutional forces that are sort of requiring this imaginative reclaiming that's happening in the poem, I guess. I don't know. That doesn't seem that, seems like maybe partly right, but I feel like there's more going on. I mean, that's basically the direction I went with it. Uh, it felt sort of like shamans in my country, our shamans were women. It felt like those shamans were set up uh, sort of in opposition to our teacher was a woman whose daughters wanted to be nuns speaking to, as you were pointing out, it's this invasive patriarchal society that is so powerful. The internalized misogyny of it reaches even this woman and her daughters who want to be nuns. It becomes a self-perpetuating destructive system that is trying to capture our writer. It's trying to make her part of that system. And what this poem then does is really turn into an act of resistance against it so that by the end, uh, she's saying, let us have our own mothers and scarves, our spirits, our shamans, who we know from the beginning in my country, our shamans were women. Um, so even if it's not explicitly saying empowered female religious figures, Shamans can point back to that part from the beginning, our sacred books, um, let us eat what makes us holy. This whole end part then sort of looks like a very pointed striking out against that system that tried to ensnare her at an early age. And I also, I really like the line, I memorized prayers and recited them in front of women I did not believe in, because I could see that either being this teacher or even being statues of the Virgin Mary. 
not knowing the specific beliefs of either the individual in the poem or Emily Jungmin Yoon. But I, I think it's it's interesting how that works um, and how in Catholicism, a highly patriarchal and restrictive religion in terms of its views of women does have female figures within its you know scripture, but the purpose to which they are put and the way in which they are framed is often restrictive. Yeah, that seems that seems right. It's also interesting, and this sort of maybe gets at a little bit of the kind of the, the parts and the turns that you were mentioning, and also maybe a little bit the way that gender is working a little bit. But I was loving the the way that Oh Sweet moves in the and repeats in the poem. Um, so it starts in front of reciting them in front of women I did not believe in. Deliver us from evil. And this is like part, this is italicized. So it's part of the prayer. Oh, sweet Virgin Mary, amen, which is also italicized. And then, oh, sweet, oh, sweet. And so the oh, sweet is this phrase that comes from the prayer that, you know, she doesn't believe in. And then it kind of like takes on a little bit a life of its own when it's repeated, oh, sweet, oh, sweet, which is now no longer part of the prayer and is in the speaker. And then at first, it's kind of an ironizing word, sweet. In this country, which calls itself Christian, what is sweeter than hearing have mercy on us? Um, and I actually have a separate question about that line, but the the sweetness there seems false in some way. But then there is this that prayer scene that you identified is really pretty marvelous and also is like seems to be like kind of the thing that gets us into the space at the end from those who serve different gods and then O, which is like enjammed so that's like a that's a bold move <laughs> um oh clement oh loving oh god oh god amidst ruins amidst waters fleeing fleeing and then there's a talisized deliver us from evil oh sweet oh sweet in those, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, seven lines, there's nine O's. <laughs> the speaker is like taking the words from this thing that she has been pressed upon her. I mean, it's like sort of a literal like repurposing or reclaiming of language and then sort of like turning it by just like sheer rhythm and word magic into like something that sort of like works for her or can like deliver her into the place at the end where she can say, you know, let us eat what makes us holy. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess now that I say that, I don't know how that carries into the gender aspect of it. But but certainly that does seem to be like the fundamental lyrical element that is creating the turn from the first into the second into the third section. Yeah, I also don't know that I have a real straight or sure-footed idea of how that particular section plays into the the gender movements within the poem. But it is, as you noted, a really interesting lyrical interlude. I like that it switches from italics to non-italics to italics again, because it makes me wonder if it's like one long almost internal conversation that starts happening and are the non-italicized parts, the thought process that goes on while saying one of these prayers, or is it a mixture of the initial prayer and then almost like it would be a montage 
in a film of a lot of time passing and thinking about this subject and cogitating on it because you you have that section in this country which calls itself Christian, what is sweeter than hearing and then italicized, have mercy on us, which you could hear from any population that has come to, I'm assuming in this instance, it means the United States, but any immigrant population that came to the United States and found themselves othered, which would be basically every immigrant population that's come to the United States um, and has to sort of beseech this patriarchal power structure, have mercy on us. Um, And then in some very twisted instances, has to literally say, as is the next italicized bit, deliver us from evil that evil being the patriarchal oppression that the country itself has put upon them, but that the oppressed population is still constantly asked to continue asking permission to be delivered from, as opposed to having any sort of uh, like agency or understanding on the part of larger power structures of what the like pernicious effects of those power structures are. Um, so in some ways, I think it is a very powerful couple of statements about the position of new arrivals in the United States, um, which I think is particularly powerful right now, where all levels of activity by like anyone who is an immigrant or who would visually look like they may have immigrated, who is not someone who can pass as, as white right now, it's, it's become so particularly difficult. It reminds me of, there's this book I've started reading called witnessing which is by kelly oliver it's kind of like it's an academic sort of theoretical text but it's trying to think about witnessing in a new way but one of the problems that it identifies with sort of like contemporary or like current discourse about things is that the ultimate goal often is framed in terms of being recognized So like civil rights movements have been framed around like, you know, we are equal citizens in America and deserve all of the rights that everyone else gets and white people get or straight people get or whatever. Um, So you need to recognize us as equal under the law. But the one one problem that Oliver identifies with that is that the, the powerful entity still is the one who bestows the recognition. So in in the context of this, you were sort of talking about how the speaker is sort of reframing that deliver us from evil in the way that immigrant populations are asked, you know, A, to be to be often assimilated. And in that way, they're kind of like asking to be recognized as the same as everyone else or whatever. Um, and in a similar way to be sort of delivered from whatever evil that it doesn't actually exist, but that sort of the oppressive structure, whatever. But in that request, the powerful still are the one who bestows either the deliverance or the recognition. And so that seems to be really important, especially at the end of this poem, where the speaker is like, well, on the one hand, if a word for religion they don't believe in is magic, so it's like, if they're not going to like recognize us, and just call us whatever they're going to call us, then let us have that. We'll have magic. Um, And then, like, let us have our own things, you know, our own mothers, scarves, spirits, and let us keep our stars to ourselves, which sort of refers back to the moment in this country, point at the moon, at the stars, point at the way the lake lies with a handful of feathers. So 
there's a almost an image of the the speaker or someone theoretically like if you're like well look how beautiful that is and you're pointing to the stars and you're in that pointing you're sort of asking for someone to to recognize what you've pointed at and be like yes that is indeed beautiful or whatever but instead you know are looking at your hand um that's doing the pointing and saying it's full of feathers and then they're going to kill you or something. And so the speaker says, let us just keep our stars to ourselves. So we're no longer going to sort of like ask for recognition from this they or the powerful. And so it does seem to be a movement, you know, away from that ask of recognition, which is, I think, participating in some contemporary, there are newer contemporary paradigms. There was a critique of the gay marriage movement from the left and from like LGBTQ people in that marriage was an ask for recognition that they are the same as or something. And also the other part was that marriage equality is not the greatest problem facing many people who are queer. But the critique was kind of like, we shouldn't be like asking just for the same things that have, that the powerful people have that we don't, but rather we should be doing something like making something new that doesn't have those same structures in place. And it feels like a little bit like this poem is, is trying to carve out um, a similar kind of imaginative space. Definitely, particularly towards that last bit, as you were pointing out, very much it is talking about, you know, let us have our own things and let that be enough. We'll pray to no one. We will pray for ourselves. And that also sort of reframes the whole prayer section as being in some way directed at those original women that the, the speaker did not believe in. But I really like all of that because it does point to where this comes and lands at the end, which is let us eat what makes us holy, which is such a powerful act of internalization. If you're eating it, it's becoming part of you. You become one with it. You really are in touch with and the same as and made up of whatever this substance of holiness is. And it literally sustains and energizes you like food would uh, if you're eating it and taking it in. Plus, it is the opposite of speaking. Speaking, you're letting something out of your mouth and eating, you're bringing it in. And so in a poem titled Say Grace, which does include a, a prayer said to, uh, as we call out, women I did not believe in, this is in every way the opposite of that. And that a different way of saying grace is really taking in and internalizing and synthesizing your being with the parts of a tradition that make you who you are rather than looking for that external validation or trying to bring it into harmony with this oppressive force that in the world of the poem and basically always in the real world is not interested in taking those parts into itself. It's interested in how can we change those things to be more in line with what we have in place. Yeah, I, I love thinking about eating versus speaking that way. <laughs> That's so right. And it's interesting because it really, this is like a less substantial comment. <laughs> but it's interesting to me personally how there's like very little eating or food in the poem before that moment. I think almost nothing. And personally, I would, in my own poems, trying to like somehow subtly set up my connotative meanings that I'm going to throw in at the end. And so I would be writing this like, you know, we've got this dinner scene 
that doesn't seem to be about anything or like we're talking about food da, 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 da. and then at the end if i'm saying let us see what makes us holy you know you've sort of already been imbued um but this poem does not do that or there, uh, what what i was thinking is that maybe earlier on there's a communion scene because mm-hmm. there is you know there is ingesting in the catholic tradition there's and the there is the transubstantiation, you know, there's the, that's, that's eating, that's consuming what theoretically is holy. So there, there could yeah. be something along those lines, but no, there isn't. Yeah. And I think that it, I mean, I think that it works well in that way. Well, it just introduces a totally new element at the end, totally new way of being or thinking about this stuff. Um, and so in a poem that is interested in carving out a new space and is interested in avoiding, you know, what has been given to them to sort of bring in eating or this this whole image at the end makes some kind of sense there. It's also it helps that it it's a it's common enough in a figurative way because it has the like transubstantiation and other ways that eating sort of has figurative moments that it doesn't like take us off guard. It's not like a crazy jump, but it is notable that it's like the last sentence, the two last lines, um, and it's sort of making a figurative statement on something that hasn't existed in the poem before. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, eating hasn't specifically shown up, but it does feel like it's, uh, maybe the ultimate iteration of the idea of the, you know, doing something for yourself. No, yeah, I love that that way of thinking about internalizing um, and consuming versus speaking out and sort of in doing so asking for validation or whatever. The only other thing is that I just really like the line until white people brought an ecstasy of rosaries and our cities today glow with crosses like graveyards. I love that line because glow and then crosses and then graveyards is so great because glow is like, well, it's like visual, but it's like also kind of cool, but it's also sort of eerie. And then crosses is referring to not crosses on graveyards, but just like the proliferation of Christ and Catholic neck, well, like necklaces or, you know, crosses everywhere, et cetera. But the like graveyards is just that like, just the the foreboding and the grim connotation of like what this imposition of Christianity has sort of done for the cities. For sure. And though it says crosses and not crucifixes, I think it also brings to mind because of the context crucifixes and the profusion of images of the dead or bleeding Christ that Catholicism and Christianity tend to bring in their wake. So I think along the lines of graveyards, there's just a lot of images of dead and injured bodies that go along with that religious tradition. Um, I think the last thing I want to pull out is just that I really like the reference of scarves at the end, because as I said, it puts me in mind of uh, headscarves, hijabs uh, in Islam. And that's something that's been targeted in Western societies, both by those on the right and the left. And I think that that is a powerful connection to ways in which all elements of these societies try to reject certain uh, religious practices which have been otherized in these societies. Um, So you have like in France, a highly secular society tries to ban head coverings because, you know, they want to keep religion out of the public square so intensely. 
Um, and then you have conservatives in the United States who take a very similar line. And you have this meeting of both left and right, both of whom end up imposing certain views on another cultural practice. Again, I don't know for sure that's what the scarves is referring to, but at least that's where I sort of go with it when I read this piece. I think that's it. Shall we do it again? I think we should. All right. Say grace. In my country, our shamans were women and our gods multiple until white people brought an ecstasy of rosaries and our cities today glow with crosses like graveyards. As a child in Sunday school, I was told I'd go to hell if I didn't believe in God. Our teacher was a woman whose daughters wanted to be nuns. And I asked, what about babies? And what about Buddha? And she said, they're in hell too. And so I memorized prayers and recited them in front of women I did not believe in. Deliver us from evil, O sweet Virgin Mary, amen. O sweet, O sweet. In this country, which calls itself Christian, what is sweeter than hearing, have mercy on us. From those who serve different gods, O clement, O loving, O God. O oh God, amidst ruins, amidst waters, fleeing, fleeing, deliver us from evil. O oh sweet, O oh sweet, in this country, point at the moon, at the stars, point at the way the lake lies with a handful of feathers, and they will look at the feathers and kill you for it. If a word for religion they don't believe in is magic, so be it. Let us have magic. Let us have our own mothers and scarves our spirits, our shamans, and our sacred books. Let us keep our stars to ourselves, and we shall pray to no one. Let us eat what makes us holy. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Roster munley just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time.